Henry II, the King of England, was dead. His son and new king, Richard, sent the Marshal of England, William, across the Channel with orders to release from captivity his 67-year-old mother, the formidable Eleanor of Aquitaine. William, the Marshal, arrived in Winchester, where she was being kept locked up, to find the Queen was, quote, already at liberty and happier than usual, unquote, as apparently news of the King's death had arrived before the Marshal did, and when it had, Eleanor had simply asked the men who were keeping her under lock and key to release her, and those men knew well the love the new King Richard had for his mother, and also knew of his fearsome reputation, and they decided that, you know what, they would. The marshal arrived to find the elderly lady already presiding over a hastily assembled court, filled with locals who had turned up to pay their respects. The marshal then informed Queen Eleanor that she had been, to quote the chronicler Ralph of Dystow, quote, entrusted with the power of acting as regent for her son. Indeed, he issued instructions to the princes of the realm, almost in the style of a general edict, that the Queen's word should be law in all matters, unquote. Armed with this new power, Eleanor gathered up her newly discovered and growing retinue, which now included the Justicar of the realm, and rode at once to London. Here she arrived in Westminster, where she decreed, according to the document known as the Gesta Regis Ricardi, quote, that every freeman in the whole realm must swear that he would bear fealty to the Lord Richard, Lord of England, in life and limb and earthly honour, as his liege lord, against all men and women, living or dead, and that they would be answerable to him and to help him to keep his peace and justice in all things, unquote. London witnessed a new regime, and for the first time in a very long time, the oldest living son of a king of England was to follow his father to the throne without conflict, coup d'etat, usurpation, and or intrigue. Not since the reign of Edgar the Peaceable, which we covered all the way back in chapter 22 of the story of London, had this happened. London saw the first smooth succession of a king of England in 200 years. This is a heady and intoxicating fact. The city gazed in awe. As down the river, just and upon that island in the Thames, Westminster, they sought many of the Lord's spiritual and secular flock to give oaths to the Queen on behalf of the King. And Queen Eleanor received their promises of loyalty alongside the Archbishop of Canterbury. She greeted all imperially, and as such, she presented to London such an amazing contrast. When her former husband's mother, the Empress Matilda, had attended Westminster and demanded all swear oaths of loyalty, she had been met by scorn and revolt, as we covered in chapter 64. But here we are, 40 years later, and her daughter-in-law was greeted with acclaim an adulation, and a respect universal. The Queen restored to honour men who had been rebellious to her husband, Henry II, but 
loyal to her, including the likes of Richard de Beaumont, the Earl of Leicester, who had invaded England with Flemish mercenaries, but they were to support King Richard and his older brother, the late Prince Henry, so he was forgiven. And this done, Eleanor gracefully and regally left London on a progress across the south, and as Roger of Hovden says, quote, moving her royal court from city to city and from castle to castle, just as she pleased, unquote. A smooth transition of power. A new age had begun. This surely meant a new and glorious moment in the city's history was about to begin, yes? Oh, no, I'm afraid not. Indeed, London was now set on a course of events that was to see it facing a besieging army within a few years, and it would unleash upon itself the most drastic revolution in the city's history so far. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is The Story of London, a podcast that tries to do justice to the epic and amazing tale of the settlement from the point of view of the residents of the city at the time. We've reached the year 1189, and begin the tale of some of the most important years in the city's history. There is a lot to get over in the next few episodes, because we are about to see the creation of the position of the Mayor of London. But that position wasn't created by some sedate mechanism. The creation of the Mayor of London is a tale steeped in politics, intrigue and death. Because 1189 is a year we need to focus on uh, quite a bit, because it was to see the first case of mass murder of the residents of London at the hands of other residents of London. The Dark Age of London is about to manifest itself fully as we tell the tale of chapter 75 of the story of London and the second segment in the story of the revolution caused by the arrival of the mayor. Welcome then to the sins of King Yes or No. Richard the Lionheart. How we love Richard the Lionheart. The brave king. The wise king. In movies, he's always portrayed as just. Always always portrayed as noble and wise. And I hate to tell you this, but he was none of those things. He was a half-decent war leader. Pretty good, even. But let's put that into perspective. He doesn't match the ranks of the really great war leaders we've mentioned so far in the story of London. So the likes of Pender the Great of Mercia, Alfred the Great of Wessex, Aethelstan of England, um, the Norse-Gale diasporan leaders of Olaf Guthrison, Halfton Whiteshirt and Imar the Boneless, they were all better than him. And he doesn't even come close to the likes of Canute of Denmark and William of Normandy. Those guys are the A-star list of great military leaders. Richard is not even close to any of them. But he was a king who captured our imagination. He is seen as the most romantic of English kings. This symbol of the three lions remains to this day a national icon of England. Alone of all the kings of England since the Anglo-Saxons, he is referred to by his nickname. 
he is Richard the Lionheart. Only he was never actually called the Lionheart in his life. The French nicknamed him Cour de Lion, the courage of the lion, the heart of the lion. But that nickname came out of the court of King Philip Augustus of France. And when King Philip Augustus and his court gave him that nickname, they were ass-kissing him at the time. Now, the best nickname he ever had was the name Richard picked up when he was younger. The nickname given to him by his people. Because Richard identified with a bunch of people who were not English. He identified with Aquitaine. Richard loved Aquitaine. He was Aquitanian in mindset. He spoke their language, and it must be said that in Aquitaine at the time, they did not speak French. They spoke Occitan. And as he grew up, in their lands and in their tongue, they gave him a much more revealing nickname. They called him Oc et Non. Yes or no. That was his true nickname. Richard, yes or no. And what did that mean? Well, partly it was a joke, a reflection of his manner, really. I mean, Richard supposedly is the kind of guy you could ask a question of, and he would answer with just, yeah, or just, no. So, if you were feeling generous, you could say he was a man of few words. Yet that nickname, based on who he was and how he acted, is also revealing about something else. Yes or no. Happy or sad. Playful or furious. Nothing in between. That, I think, is a closer approximation to King Richard I of England than his personality. And it's important to know going into this, because I think when you take away the romance about him, the mythic idea of the, how he was the Lionheart, what you actually find is an extreme personality. If he was happy with you, he was ecstatic. If he hated you, he was psychotic. No grey areas, no in-between. Am I being unfair? Mm, probably. But then again, he was so much like his father, who shared the same trait. And you want proof of that? Look, there's a moment in the last few weeks of the life of King Henry II. He'd just faced the last rebellion of his son Richard, backed by the French king, Philip Augustus. And Henry II had lost, clearly. He'd totally lost and he was, well, the pressure of everything was getting to him. He was poorly, very poorly, and was possibly dying. Now, the king was summoned to appear before the victorious French king and his rebellious son, Richard Yesono. On the way, Henry II was stricken with a severe fever and actually had to stop at a house owned by the Knights Templar. He sent his knights ahead to inform the French king that he was unwell and he would probably be delayed for a few days. His son, Richard, accused his father of faking it and demanded his father bloody well come and surrender to him. So, Henry II came, riding through a thunderstorm, soaked to the skin, his knights having to prop him up in the saddle. The king of the vast Angevin Empire conceded to the wily younger French king. He was to pay homage to Philip for all his continental domains, agreed to leave all his lands, including England, to Richard to inherit, and ordered his barons on both sides of the channel to swear fealty to Richard as their father's heir. More than that, 
He was to pardon all those who had fought for Richard against him and was to promise to go on crusade by Lent 1190 alongside his son Richard and the King of France. Henry accepted these terms without complaint. He had no choice and he turned to leave. But then Philip insisted that Henry gave his son Richard the kiss of peace. Reluctantly, Henry II complied. But as he drew away from his son, his last words to Richard were supposedly, quote, God grant that I may not die until I have had a fitting revenge on you, unquote. He never did have a fitting revenge on Richard. But between Richard's demand that his dying father show up in a thunderstorm to surrender to him and Henry's exact last words, you get the idea that these two men possess the same borderline psychotic anger and fury towards dealing with people. This was the origins of yes or no. This is the starting point for the personality of this new King of England. So in 1189, Henry II is dead and London witnesses a new regime via the arrival and regal triumph of the king's mother and therefore it eagerly waited the arrival of the king himself. Richard did turn up and began to make his way towards London and Westminster. One of the first things King Yesono did was to fire the Justicar of England, a man called Ranulph Glanville. He fired Glanville because he was a figure of the old regime and he'd also jailed his mother and to replace him as the supreme royal justice, well, two men, one for the north and one for the south. The northern one I mentioned, because his story will impact upon London in a way coming up, he was an ambitious noble called Hugh de Pousset, whose mother, Agnes of Bois, had been the late King Stephen's sister. Now, Hugh was currently the Bishop of Durham. He was aged 64 and was effectively the power in the north of England, connected to the incredibly powerful Percy family. But the Southern Justica, well, Richard appointed none other than William de Mandeville, the Earl of Essex, and a surname well known to regular listeners of this podcast. Considering the rebellious nature of his family and their dubious track record, de Mandeville's rise was a heck of a triumph for this old crusader. The residents of London could be excused for secretly beginning to worry if he tried to take over the Tower of London again. Meanwhile, as the new King of England began his progress towards London, he replaced the position of Chancellor of England also. The previous holder of the post had been another die-hard loyalist of his late father, a man called Geoffrey, who was also his bastard half-brother. Richard arranged for his half-brother to step down as Chancellor of England and become the Archbishop of York. And the new king's replacement as Chancellor was a Norman called William Longchamp, one of the nation's most significant political figures to be. Not since the infamous Renaud Flambard had this country seen a character like this guy. He was not chosen out of nowhere, he had been Richard's Chancellor down in Aquitaine. Longchamp was the newly made Bishop of Ely and was also someone who kind of stood out. He was said to be short, had a pronounced limp and an obvious stammer. One critic said he reminded him of a deformed and rather hairy ape. Rumours abounded that he was the grandson of a runaway serf, and many of the English highborns considered him to be an upstart. By all accounts, Longchamp was an able and practical administrator. 
and his one true vice was that he was somewhat overambitious and definitely overconfident, and apparently he used his newly gained power to advance his own interests and his family interests. The problem with that complaint was that wasn't a sin at the time. In fact, that was how everyone acted at the time. The last dozen episodes of the story of London shows that the oligarchs of London, the bishops of London, the bishops and oligarchs of everywhere used their positions of power to promote their families and their relatives. It was de rigueur. But the magic ingredient was keeping others happy as you did so. And in this, Longchamp failed entirely. And he would in time become incredibly unpopular. Longchamp was a Norman who had spent the last few years in Aquitaine. He felt England was cold, boorish, and he loathed being here. Longchamp alienated many people with his arrogance and blundering tactlessness. His only true redeeming feature was that he was utterly loyal to King Richard. Yet Longchamp's uselessness is what's going to drive a lot of what's about to happen to London. But we'll get to that. Meanwhile, as for London itself, well, it was preparing itself in those weeks for the arrival of the new king. And finally, on September the 1st, 1189, King Richard and his mother, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, rode in a grand stately procession through the streets of the city. The walls were hung with tapestries and garlands, and they'd spread fresh rushes on the ground to cover the copious amounts of animal poop. And to the sounds of cheering crowds and great rejoicing, the king and his mother arrived in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Now, here they would normally take the blessing of the Bishop of London. Only there wasn't a Bishop of London. Gilbert Foylet, the nemesis of Thomas Becket, a.k.a. St. Thomas of London and Canterbury, had survived the storms of those amazing years and the saga we explained back in chapter 71 of the story of London, but he had eventually aged, lost his eyesight, and passed finally from this earth the year before, and no replacement had been chosen yet. Thus, while they no doubt gained blessings of the priests who were there, Eleanor and Richard's time in St. Paul's Cathedral would be brief, just enough time to organise and allow an elaborate and regal procession of the nobles and bishops of England to lead them out of the cathedral, down the road to Ludgate, through Ludgate, over the bridge across the River Fleet with its water wheels and controversial river gates owned by the Knights Templar, and then onto Fleet Street where to the left the giant compound of the Knights Templar was based, towards the road known as the Strand, and then following the river, processed to Westminster Palace. And two days later, on September the 3rd, Richard I, King of England, was in the great Abbey of Westminster, solemnly anointed as monarch by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Baldwin. The coronation itself was a barnstormer, a grand pageant, filled with riches and opulence, the most magnificent one seen in England so far. And indeed, Richard's coronation would set the benchmark and the standard for many coronations to come. And William de Mandeville, he got to carry the king's crown during the ceremony, a place of great and singular honour. One source says that, quote, at his coronation were present his brother John and his mother Eleanor, counts and barons, and an immense crowd of men and soldiers, unquote. The robes worn by the Queen Mother, by the way, were known to have cost 
£7, and actually included a long cape made of silk and trimmed with the fur of squirrel and sable, which alone cost £4, one shilling and seven pence. And the Queen's mother expense was nothing to the amount of money Richard had spent on himself and on others to make this such a magnificent thing. He spent a fortune. He didn't have a fortune to spend, but he sent the fortune. Apparently, according to Roger of Hoveden, because the king was unmarried, all women were barred from Richard's coronation. But another chronicler of the time, Dicto, stated that Queen Eleanor had been invited at the request of the, quote, earls, barons, and sheriffs, unquote, so high in their nation's estimation was she. After this grand coronation, the king had then, according to the itinerary of Richard I, quote, celebrated the occasion by a festival of three days and entertained his guests in the royal palace of Westminster, unquote, where he, quote, gratified all by distributing money to all according to their ranks, thus manifesting his liberality and great excellence, unquote. <laughs> Roger of Wendover sums it up more simply when he says the guests, quote, feasted so splendidly that the wine flowed along the pavement and walls of the palace, unquote. In that giant hall built by William II some years ago, it sounds like a hell of a party was taking place, even if, like the coronation, women were forbidden from attending. But it all sounds majestic and rich and splendid, does it not? It wasn't. It was far from it. There was a toxic pride in that gathering of men, most of whom held power because of their simple affinity towards violence. The king was going on crusade. All knew this. Jerusalem had fallen to the forces of the great Muslim Emir Salah Adin. Richard of England and Philip Augustus of France would, in a few months' time, leave massive armies to liberate the holy city from the forces of the non-Christians. Everybody knew this. Because of that, you could almost taste the bigotry in the air, hanging on the tip of every tongue, hovering below the smiling faces, spoken loudly most by those men who knew they would not have to march to Jerusalem to fight, and as such were always the loudest to condemn and drive others to fight for them. These men possessed the distinct hatred of all things non-Christian. Alas for these brave cowards, there were no Muslims nearby to condemn and to encourage reckless violence against, like the cowards they were, hiding behind more gullible and screaming, go on, kill them, no, no, there were no Muslims for them to do that to. But there were Jews. Now, the king had issued a decree during the coronation that no Jews should be allowed to attend the ceremony, probably because he knew well the temperament of many of his people. But Ralph of Dicto describes what happened on the second night of the Grand Coronation Feast at that huge hall in Westminster. He says, quote, The leaders of the Jews arrived against the express decree of the king, unquote. Now this was probably not true. The king had decreed no Jew attend the coronation, but all citizens were expected to pay tribute to their king, and the leaders of London's Jewish community probably just showed up to do that. But... To the bigots in that room at that moment, 
their arrival triggered them. They were the kind of men who think saying non-Christians should not turn up at a sacred Christian coronation ceremony meant technically they should not turn up at a not-at-all-sacred piss-up afterwards. Yes, it makes no sense. No, they did not care. According to Ralph of Dicto, quote, the courtiers laid hands on the Jews and stripped and flogged them and threw them out of the king's court. Some they killed, others they left half dead, unquote. Simply put, this was a brutal and unjustified attack. Men turn up and are set upon, dragged outside to the precincts of Westminster Palace, stripped, flogged, and more. And they did not die from the flogging, please. That takes some time to kill someone from flogging. No, they were set upon by men with knives and swords. So they were flogged, yes, but also kicked, punched, and stabbed repeatedly. It was a savage, nasty, cowardly little attack. These were the leaders of the Jewish community. We cannot remove the image of men in their 40s and 50s being set upon by a pack of younger, heavily armed, frenzied little psychopaths. And yet this, alas, was only the beginning. The account goes on to say, quote, The people of London, following the courtier's example, began killing and robbing and burning the Jews. Yet a few escaped that massacre, shutting themselves up in the Tower of London or hiding in the houses of their friends." Unquote. The explosion of hate that began in Westminster spread as hatred likes to spread, and a mob of Londoners was raised and turned upon the Jews of the city. That description, that short description, contains so much within it. The residents of London fell upon their Jewish neighbours. That in itself is horrific enough. Your, your neighbours turning upon you. It's the stuff of nightmares. But look, they not only fell upon them and with fist and knife, with wooden staff and sword, beat and murdered their neighbours and God knows what else. Not only did they kick down the doors and simply help themselves to their neighbours' property, robbing from the victims of their possessions, but they burned them. This was a frenzied mob. This was that heart of darkness, London, long hell, unleashed in the most awful way. It was all the way back in chapter 17 of this podcast, I described the birth or the first manifestation of this heart of darkness, this fury of London. Back then I described it as the fury that drove the London Peaceguild, the first attempt of London to run its own affairs, a gathering of a baying mob of residents who would respond to the theft of property of Londoners by forming massive bloodthirsty posses and rampaging across the countryside, demanding restitution and simply killing anyone who got in their way. The Peace Guild's fury was a manifestation of the newfound agency in violence London had shown towards the Viking Raiders, as they covered in chapters 15 and 16. And we've seen this fury manifest itself many times over the 200 plus years since those moments. 
We see it in chapter 24 and London's resistance to the invading army of Sven's Forkbeard. We see it in chapter 27 and London's ship-based war upon the Thames, slaughtering the Yom's Vikings. We saw it in chapters 32 and 34 of the story and the accounts of London's furious defence of the city against not just Sven's Forkbeard but his son Canute. Then we got to chapter 44 and saw London's defiance against the Anglo-Danish forces of the arch-traitor Godwin of Wessex and in chapter 48 we saw as it stood as the last true bastion of resistance against William of Normandy. London's teeth were sharp and its anger great and only as recently as the anarchy in chapter 65 London had shown its ferocious residents were still formidable in battle. And yet here, now in 1189, we see something new. Previous to this moment, London had shone its fury to those who lived beyond its walls. London had remained one. The old feud of the Anglesin, that mentality had seemingly held. But this attack upon its own citizens, this broke the covenant of the London sin, the London kind, forever. It seems as if the dysfunction and hatred that had been brought into this land by the Angevins and the dynasties of Normans and Danes had finally worn down the sense of unity that had united this city and infected London with these horrible core values. I call book three of the story of London the Dark Age of London. And here, round the streets on the corner of Ironmongers Row and Westcheap, where the Jewish community resided within the walls, we see why it was the Dark Age of London. What we are seeing here and now is the death of old London and the massacre, not just of innocent Londoners, but of the idea of the London kind. And it wasn't because they were foreign in some way, please. The city had tolerated and assimilated foreigners of all kinds. The Normans were once foreigners. The Danes had been foreign. The Saxons had been foreign. We have Frisian merchants residing in London, going all the way back to the era of Londonwick, previous to Alfred the Great, moving it to where it is now, as we covered back in chapter 14. No. What drove this, I feel, was, as the account says, people, quote, following the courtier's example, unquote. This was London being told or instructed or just being infected by outsiders to turn on their own kind. Now, you can be forgiven to thinking I'm being perhaps a little bit too strong in my reaction and my reading of this. Perhaps one account, one line does not make proof. I accept that. But consider three things that we gain from the final sentence in that description of the massacre. The first is that the survivors of this massacre, and that's what it was, a massacre, fled to the Tower of London. Of course they did. The Jewish community was under, supposedly, the king's protection. And the Tower of London was now, what with Baynard's Castle and Montfichet Castle, in the hands of lesser lords, their last remaining bastion of royal power in the city. And the account says they shut themselves up in the tower. But let's have a reality check here. Do the residents of the Jewish community just have the power and the keys to demand a royal fortress opens up, allows them in, and then they can lock the door behind them? No, only someone with genuinely insane levels of anti-Semitism would ever suggest it was. 
So that means that the desperate and terrified survivors of this communal violence fled to the Tower of London and the garrison there based saw what was happening and let them in and perhaps prevented outsiders from getting in because what they were seeing was genuinely horrific. And secondly, look towards what else is said. Some of the Jewish community were hidden in the houses of their Gentile friends. There were Londoners who responded with horror to what was being done, who refused to take part in it, who saw their Jewish neighbours as people, just people, only people, and risked their own lives because anyone who dares defy a baying mob automatically makes yourself a target of the baying mob. But they did defy them, and they hid London's Jews in their own homes, men, women, and children. They protected them from the unspeakable and unimaginable violations being acted upon their fellow neighbours in the streets of Old Jewry. The action of those Londoners, by the way, during that orgy of violence for me, it saves the soul of London, just a little. There were decent people, even when all about them seemed fey, possessed of a madness, a lunacy most foreign and terrible to this city. And finally, for those who consider that this theory of mine and the way I'm speaking about it is based on me being merely expressing moral indignation and that it has no cold historical basis in reality, I would like you to consider one final thing. Until this moment, until the massacre of the Jewish community in 1189, there had been no recorded incident of Londoners turning upon one another like this. I've looked. I've looked hard. Now, I will admit, there may be a moment I have somehow missed, and I invite any historian who know of one to tell me, and I'll take this on board. And, oh, London was fractious, and we know from the... Kinnitus guilds that they did sometimes use violence to settle their differences. But previous to 1189, there are no recorded incidences of communal violence between large numbers of London. But after September 1189, after the unspoken covenant of the London sin, the London kind was defiled on the blood-soaked streets of Old Jewry, from now on there will be violence there will be blood. In fact, within only a few years from now, the first major urban-based insurrection in London's history will take place. Coincidence, perhaps, the narrator picking up a theme and driving it home a tad too hard? I'll accept that. But any which way you see it, the pogrom of 1189 was not only a horrific moment, but also signifies a massive societal change in the way London's residents related to one another because beyond this moment the beast had been unleashed the london mob had tasted blood and from now on yeah it would turn again on those who were jewish and when it couldn't turn on them it would turn on those who were foreigners and when it couldn't turn on them it would turn on itself london would now get a taste for communal violence against londoners this is, in my opinion, in all ways, the truest legacy of King Richard, yes or no. His one true gift to London. As the anti-Jewish pogrom spread throughout England, with attacks upon Jewish communities going like wildfire to King's Lynn, 
Norwich, Lincoln and Stanford. The focus of this podcast is to look at what he did to the city itself. Well, he gave the city this. In terms of what kings of the nation have done for London, he stands tall and proud as being the single most useless monarch to ever sully the streets of London. Even King Ethelred Unrid had done better for London than this useless Aquitanian bully. In all ways, Richard I was a complete failure as a king of England. By the time of his death, and his death is a story unto itself worthy of some grim, dark carry-on movie, this useless sock muppet spent only ten months of his entire reign in the nation, and it simply bleed it dry. The deprivations, the economic deprivations of Richard Yesono upon the economy were as horrendous as the foolish gangills of Ethelred and the outright theft of William I. And Richard is given a pass for this economic stupidity because he was raising money for a good cause. His need to go on crusade, and then for the many continental wars he had to fight because of what he did while he was on crusade. And here I do not believe I am being harsh. Richard spoke no English. He had no care for the land he ruled. And he was, in every respect, a southerner from Aquitaine. He lacked his father's talents and administration and possessed only a ferocious intensity. And yet, paradoxically, he captured the imaginations of his subjects, who seemingly admired his chivalrous exploits. I have yet to see anywhere where he was chivalrous. And they just basically applauded his obsessive dedication to freeing the Holy Land. Of course, the key to why Richard the Lionheart was invented and why he was so beloved is simple. He wasn't around. He spent most of his reign away from England. It's very easy to project into a distant figure all your hopes and dreams. You don't have to deal with the real man. England never had to cope with Richard, yes or no. He pissed off. And it allowed them in their place to imagine him as Richard the Lionheart. Anyway, after the coronation and his inability to deal with London and then the rest of England seeing a massive anti-Jewish pogrom, Richard had one issue that he was willing to deal with. He needed cash, lots of cash. He wanted to lead a huge capital army to Jerusalem and he'd overspent on the coronation. And any monies Henry II had given him, well, he owed Philip Augustus of France a fortune. Richard needed capital, and so in a way not seen since William of Normandy had turned up and stolen the land under the feet of the residents, or since the reign of William II and Renal Flambard with his creative taxation policies, the King of England milked England dry. He imposed crippling taxes and sold off land and public offices at incredibly exorbitant prices. The jester Regis Riccardi said, quote, Everything was for sale. Powers, lordships, earldoms, chivalrities, castles, towns, manors, and such lights, unquote. One writer of the time, Richard of Devizes, claimed Richard had actually said, quote, If I could have found a buyer, I would have sold London itself, unquote. To those alive at the time, it appeared as if Richard simply wanted to sell the kingdom, 
that it was nothing more than a newly inherited piggy bank that his father had left him, and he smashed open the piggy bank and took all he could, and that he cared not one jot beyond that. Indeed, it was believed at the time, and I've read at least more than one historian say this, that it was actually believed that Richard intended to sail off, liberate Jerusalem, make himself king of Jerusalem, glorious and romantic, and then renounce the throne of dowdy England and give it to his brother John. That was what was being said, apparently. From the point of view of the residents of London, it sure as hell seemed like that was what he was planning to do. And it is here that going forward that our story takes place in three places at the same time. To understand what was going on, we have to understand that events were taking place that were to cascade into one another and produce a most unique and dramatic series of events in the tale of London. And to understand how London got its mayor, we must understand all three strands of the story because one cannot exist without the other. And thus it is beholden that we follow the three different strands to understand exactly how they relate to one another. Now, in the first part, we're going to have to follow the story of King Richard as he marches to Jerusalem and how he single-handedly manages to turn the Third Crusade into almost as big a failure as the Second Crusade. And in the process of this monumental failure, he also manages to antagonize most of Europe. And despite being on the other side of Europe, his actions and stupidity were to have a profound effect on England. And at the same time, of course, we have to look at what was going on back in England, which was not ignorant of what was Richard was up to. In fact, as they were responding to Richard's antics, they also had their own issues to deal with, as the serious larger-than-life personalities who were running the country all ran into one another. And then we've got to look at what London was doing during this, because be assured, it was not sitting around and being passive. Power was about to be gained, and not just in the city, but across England. While Richard I stood out as being the first king in 200 years to have a smooth succession to the throne, this did not mean politics and intrigue were not haunting his reign. It was. So that's what's coming up as we will cover the next part of the story of the first mayor in chapter 76 of the story of London. And we'll leave this chapter with London coping with the horror of the pogrom of 1189. And I want to end it there, because while events elsewhere will take the story along at the fair pace, we must stop and consider. By today's standards, London was no mighty metropolis. By today's standards, the largest settlement in England was merely a small town. And hundreds of its residents had just been murdered by their own neighbours. How does one rebuild your lives after this? How can you return in safety and sanity? And there's a price not just paid by the victims of the massacre. For your average, normal, non-violent resident of London, how does one come to terms with walking down Cheapside and seeing on the streets leading away from it the aftermath of fire, rapine and murder committed by people who now walk down those same streets unpunished and unjudged? London would never be the same after this. Never. And the sheer gravitas of the changes we will come to in the third part of the saga of the first mayor in chapter 76 of the story of London and I'll leave it there I'll see you next week this is all saying happy new year see you in August